I'm Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. I'm Rasheen, Independent Scholar and Researcher. So it's summertime. By the time you're watching this, we certainly feel it in the room today. <laughs> um, and every summertime, we hear the same story, which is violence spikes in cities around the country. What are we going to do? So in the light of the protests of 2020, Black Lives Matter, there's increasing recognition that policing is not a mechanism alone to address the violence in inner cities. So there's a burgeoning movement, um, some would say an industry, around violence prevention. Intentional nonprofits that are doing work in community to help address the issue of violence. Now, violence prevention goes beyond nonprofits. It deals with political economy, it deals with history, it deals with slavery. But increasingly, there is a movement of some academic institutions, some nonprofits, and some institutions that um, we need to talk more about that are trying to basically claim control over the issue of violence prevention. So if you're not going to have the police do it, let us do it. And by us, I don't mean you, the community. I mean us, the academics, the nonprofits, and the people who are claiming specialized expertise, but in reality may not have the expertise that we as a community are looking for and doing what we think that they might be doing when they say violence prevention. So this is an abbreviated version of a talk that I've given before. Uh, that was a talk on research, though, the research aspect of violence prevention. I'm just going to give this talk more generally around the industry of violence prevention. How do we understand the burgeoning industry of violence prevention and make it serve the community as opposed to community serving it? So we, do you have a PowerPoint? And the idea is that we'll go through the slides and we'll discuss the slides as they scroll through. And hopefully by the end we can have some better understanding about when people say, I'm funding violence prevention, what does that mean? What do we want it to mean? And what do we want it to do? So if we start the slideshow now, we can see the very first graphic is the spike in murders since the beginning of the pandemic. And all over the country, in cities that previously had historically low murder rates, we see a spike in violence. This is from 19 to 20. It's gotten worse since then in some places, right? So, however, this comes after a historic decline in violence. So the spike we're seeing now was from historic lows. Like the large families of the 60s and 70s have tapered off the violence wave rippling out from the Vietnam War veterans coming home. That all shook out and demographically violence decreased massively. And now it's spiking back up and people are really afraid. Um, however, no matter how low violence gets, people always seem to think crime is going up. So in the midst of the largest violence to crime, violence decline in the history of America, people were still consistently saying crime is going up, violence is going up. So we have a perception and we have a reality, which is that people always feel like crime is getting worse, even when it's getting better, and now it actually is getting worse. So a lot of people are afraid that all of the so-called gains of the Black Lives Matter movement could be uh, reversed with this spike in murders. So if we go to the next slide, we'll see that black folks are historically more impacted by this than anyone else. So if we look at homicide victimization, even in the midst of this massive decline, 
black men specifically had far higher baseline rates than anyone else. The American Indian, Native Americans are actually increasing, but before this spike, this is from 1980 to 2015, black men consistently had the highest rights of victimization. And the question I want to start off with is how did we address it? How do we address it? So I'm going to lead with that. And then I'm going to get to what some of these folks are doing to claim that they are addressing it. Because historically, we have not just sat passively in the midst of these dynamics, we've worked against them. So the one uh, news clipping that I presented is there was a time in the early 90s, this is, you know, Haida Farrakhan's power, the Nation of Islam was giving contracts by the federal government to do security in public housing projects. So this was a community-driven violence prevention service that the article specifically says they were actually pleased with the service. But if we go to the next picture, the New York Times talks about the backlash to this. So when people found out it was actually the Nation of Islam, there were political forces mobilized to push them out of the projects. If they lost their federal contract, even though the people in the community were satisfied with the services they were given. So if you go to the next slide or picture, you'll see what we got in place of it. <laughs> and, you know, this is almost a joke, but I wanted to put it in to show you just how absurd this can get. So this is, in Baltimore, violent armed kids that to combat violence. That's so crazy. we have an increasing <laughs> reality that I can talk about more throughout the talk where literally anything you do, if you call it violence prevention, you might get a little bit of money for it. Mm -hmm. So we know the target demographics for these services aren't exactly going to drop the tone to pick up Stradivarius. Right. But because they can pull on people's heartstrings, and this is what many powerful people think the problem is, that these folks just aren't civilized. So if we give them Eurocentric culture, that is violence prevention. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the reality is that even though it's seen as um, limited, I have no control over the nonprofit industrial complex. But people in community do have some degree of control over, you know, uh, holding the police accountable, sort of grassroots community services. And this is particularly in the context of defund the police, which is when this talk was originally given, which is kind of what this talk is about, but also not. So when people say defund the police, like people in the community say, I don't trust you because you're going to bring me the violin stuff. Mm -hmm. And as limited of control that I have over the police, they have to come to my community meeting, which is the picture you see in front of you right now. I get to yell at them. And they are appointed by someone who's politically elected, unlike that foundation hit. So a lot of the resistance to defund the police, I think, can be traced back to, you're just going to open my community up for a massive influx of technocratic, nonprofit, industrial complex stuff, and I at least have some democratic community control over community policing. Mm -hmm. And all the limitations and failures of that, I think it just describes the status quo pretty well, where this violence prevention stuff is coming in. Right. I think one of the things that you did in the larger talk that you did on this, when you specifically when you brought up the uh, violin enrichment program masquerading as violence prevention, is to highlight like why why is that? I mean, of course, on the face of it, it's, it's ridiculous. But why is that ridiculous? One, because the demographic that that program is serving isn't likely. Yeah. I mean, in the image, what are they? Are they in like Those are third school, grade? Elementary school kids, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're like elementary uh, uh, school kids. Um, and then also the fact that there was a 
how you mentioned there was programming that was being effective, but who is that? Who who is behind that? When you mm-hmm. mentioned the one with the the Nation of Islam. Yeah, I mean, those were you know folks in community that yeah. um, you know part of the argument that um, if we go to the next slide, um, Amos Wilson amongst others makes is. The reality of violence isn't just people are bored and have nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing I realized is that maybe for white kids, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. White suburban kids get in trouble when they're bored. Mm-hmm. So people might be projecting that onto the black community. The reality for the black community is far different, where there are very real structural dynamics of living in a disinvested community with legacies of slavery, where it's like people are getting into natural conflicts over petty stuff, you know, mm-hmm. girls being in the community, slights, misapprehensions. And the reality is I've heard people say things like, I don't know if, I don't want to kill that brother, but I don't know if he wants to kill me. Mm. So we're in like literally an escalation cycle akin to like what happens in the Cold War or what's in Ukraine right now. And I think one of the people who explains this is Dr. Amos Wilson in his book, Black on Black Violence, The Psychodynamics of Black Self-Annihilation in Service of White Domination. He has a quote that we actually cite very often when we're doing this work. And if I can just read it quickly. White racist American society, harboring a poorly concealed death wish against its black captives, generally leaves but a few outlets for the release of societally provoked black male rage, all inappropriate. They include the abject submission to oppression, narcosis by drugs or religion, deliberate ignorance, unending, unrewarding protests, feudal sub rules of grumbling, overcompensatory status striving, criminality, and homicidal attacks on other black males or on himself suicide. We have internalized white racist values and attitudes, having been possessed by his injected white racist demon. The suicidal African American blames him, victimized, his victimized self. Identified with his implanted alien spirit, he harbors a death wish against the victims of white racist oppression, among whom he himself is numbered. Looking at the world with John, this white racist eye, he sees the enemy, and the enemy is himself. Mm. So this is, if we had to distill that book down to one paragraph, which unfortunately I have to do because of time, then this is kind of what I think is the critical conceptual question. Is that, now even I, even I as a researcher, um, if we go to the next slide, you, we African Southern people hear that and they're like, "Yeah, that's what's up, Dr. Amos Wilson," but take it, taking it seriously is different. So when I started to look into the numbers, I started to think about this and look at if there was statistical evidence to prove this hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So one thing I started to look at is if you actually look at white male homicides, which is symbolized by this blue um, rectangle, the ratio of homicides to white male suicides. It is a one to five ratio. So there are five suicides for every one homicide. And if you look at Dr. Wilson's argument, which is that murder in black folks is the externalization of a suicidal impulse, we would expect, and we know that black men don't commit suicide, they commit more homicides. So, but what I didn't know is that the exact ratio mm-hmm. of black male suicide to black male homicide is a perfect inversion of the white male suicide to homicide ratio. So it's almost as if the numbers are doing exactly what Dr. Wilson says, and that as opposed to committing suicide, black men are committing homicide. Mm. And that's one of those moments where, again, I think folks who study the african Southern tradition don't always get into the data. And by engaging the data with that african Southern research lens, which we're going to talk about in a bit with Dr. Akbar, you can actually see a strong argument for if you're doing violence prevention, it really should come through the context of, like Dr. Wilson, 
and really dealing with these questions of internalized racism, of the legacy of violence from slavery. Like you can't solve the problem without that. And unfortunately, we're going to see a lot of people are trying to solve the problem without that, right? So if we go to the next slide, we can see um, Dr. Akbar. Dr. Akbar is well known in terms of talking about uh, African-American research paradigms and methodologies that actually address um, the issue with black men from the perspective of slavery, including um, African-centered programming with youth. And this is actually just one example. And if you actually highlight the findings of this one program that was tried in the early 90s, uh, the effects of two prevention programs on high-risk behaviors among African-American youth, for boys, um, two programs, FDC and SCI, significantly reduced the rates of violent behavior by 35 and 47% compared to HEC, the control. Provoking behavior, 41% declined to 59% decline. School delinquency, 31% declined to 66% decline. And all these other criteria. And one thing he says is that they would have actually gotten higher results, but the control program, they basically were doing too much of their programming in the control group, mm -hmm. right? Because they didn't want to deprive those young people of the experience. So when you talk about evidence-based violence prevention, we know that giving people a strong, positive sense of racial selfhood, creating mm -hmm. a higher sense of fidelity to community in a pro-social context, as opposed to fidelity to community, so a gang context, that's a real proven mechanism to address what we see in the streets, right? So if we keep scrolling, what are some of the larger structural dynamics of what you can do to change the community dynamics so that people aren't just locked into violence? So in the book, Black Power at Work, um, David Field Goldberg and Trevor Giffney talk about the implications of federal minority set-aside programs. So this is the work of the Congressional Black Caucus in the 70s and 80s, working to make sure all federal contracts have a mandatory percentage that has to go to an independent black contractor. And one thing that you know people diminish is just the amount of money that went to black people through this program. Mm. Here in Baltimore, we know Perrin Mitchell one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus was instrumental in, you know, improving the program and defending it to make sure it actually went to black contractors and not just women-led contractors, i.e. white women. But $44 billion went to black people through this program, and that's more than the NFL budget, more than all of R&B and hip-hop. Like, it's a massive scale of intervention. Now, if we go to the scholarship, we can see that places that have the highest rates of black entrepreneurship have the highest declines in violence. Mm. And that makes sense because a lot of the young brothers who are on the streets are not going to get a job in the service economy. Yeah. But they can actually do entrepreneurial work. And it's a very different uh, relationship to reintegrating people into the community through that entrepreneurial experience. And one thing we find is what is the best, one of the best ways to give people entrepreneurship opportunities? Minority satisfies. Yeah. Right? So this is just what the data says, you know, that... Uh, if you actually look at the evidence, construction has a self-employment rate roughly double the national rates, and we're striking the high racial and gender disparities in self-employment rates. And the construction sector is also important given the existence of public sector affirmative action programs at the federal, state, and local levels. One, so, of, the, mm -hmm. one of the things that I really appreciated about this uh, particular initiative is it, it wasn't an approach of uh, pathologizing uh, I feel like 
uh, black people. It was really a focus uh, on violence prevention as a structural problem. Like, it's not like you're the problem, you're a disease, something's mm -hmm. wrong with you, let me put you in this program, let me give you a violin, mm -hmm. or what have you. It was like, okay, structurally, uh, people probably do more crimes when mm -hmm. poverty, can, what are the conditions, what are the structures in place that... Uh, create that. Yeah, and scenario. it's harnessing the natural entrepreneurial skills folks have already cultivated right. in you know their street life. You know, yeah. starting at the age of twelve in some cases. Mm -hmm. So again, this is not about loving capitalism. This is about three hundred murders a year in places like Baltimore. What's actually going to change those dynamics is we need millions and tens of millions of dollars being directed through things like federal minority set aside or state minority set aside to incubate those businesses. So it's not like these businesses can just pop up, you know, the myth of black mind power. They're not just a latent demand. Mm -hmm. You have to demand politically massive investment to get these businesses to pop up. That would actually change the dynamics on the ground. Now, let's look at what some of these folks are actually advocating in what they talk about. So there are these examples of the Coogee Chakalia Center, which is a African-centered rights of passage program for violence prevention, where they actually do, I think, a really good evidence-based model, which is, when you go to the hospital, you're a victim of violence. You're likely either to become a perpetrator of violence, seeking revenge, or become another victim of violence again. So what they say is you can go back on the street and either do violence or be a victim of violence, or we can send you to African Senate Rights of Passage Program. Mm -hmm. And this is an evidence-based model about the hospital model and an important cultural model with the African Senate Rights of Passage Program. Baba Adamola is the elder of ours. And I just bring this up because, you know, they lack capacity. They lack the ability to do all the work, to get all the grants. They have 18 likes on Facebook, just as an, an, a proxy yeah. for capacity, right? Right. And if you compare that to Baltimore Brothers, it's a program that does work in community. Uh, there are lots of different folks in the community doing work that um, does some of the coordination around violence prevention. They also have 175 likes on Facebook. This is not a scientific methodology. It's just an example of... We have people doing the work on the ground who aren't getting support. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you look at, alternatively, the Secure Violence Program, they have 13,000 likes on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So this Secure Violence entity is like one of the top um, hegemonic thought leaders in the space, one of the top entities. And let's see how they think about violence, right? So they actually have a video. They have a video that they show that explains their model of violence prevention and the idea of the disease model of violence prevention. So we can actually look at their video and see what they think. Violence doesn't happen one case at a time. One act of violence leads to another, and another, and another. It spreads like a virus. When one person becomes infected, it can spread to the whole community. The way we're currently trying to reduce the spread of violence is expensive, and people are still dying. What if we looked at violence differently? What if we treated it like a contagious disease? Some cities are doing that right now, using violence interrupters. People trained just like health workers who treat epidemics. They find the source of the violence and intervene with nonviolent solutions. They look for those who have been exposed or at the highest risk, and they help change the behaviors and norms that allow violence to spread. The results are amazing. When this was first started in one community in Chicago, shootings dropped by 67%. New Orleans went 200 days without a murder. In one Brooklyn community, the program resulted in an entire year without one shooting. And it's not just in the US. 
Around the world, lives are saved and communities change when we stop the spread of violence by using a health approach. Together, we can cure violence. So I think that video is interesting because um, though it's trying to make violence sympathetic to people who commit violence, it also kind of turns into a spectacle. Yeah. Like, it's like high production Hollywood value. And so it's like, it's very different than how I think about it because it's like understand these people as humans, but it's like, it's like violent. It's like mm -hmm. trying to scare people into mm -hmm. like agreeing with their program. Mm -hmm. It's like, it kind of does the opposite of what they're claiming it's doing. Yeah. To me at least. Um, but if we actually look at what they say they're doing, we can get some more understanding about what some of the critiques that I have and what I think the industry is doing. So let's actually talk about that methodology. So if we go to the next slide, you can actually see that one of the first things they say is culturally appropriate, not culturally affirming, not culturally based in a tradition, mm -hmm. but culturally appropriate, which is a classic buzzword for we're going to do the stuff we already wanted to do, but make it feel more amenable to whatever culture we're engaging mm -hmm. so next one is assess the highest risk so it doesn't treat the whole community it doesn't create jobs for the whole community it's isolating the people who are most proximate to violence right which i think can be important but also shows you a distinction between some of the african methodologies of investing in the whole community and thinking about culturally affirming programming at a younger age it's like once they're already right about to be victimized or victim, we come in. Provide treatment. So this is, again, a public health model that kind of mm. replicates like healthcare and treatment, not as a structural, social, spiritual intervention, but as a very sort of traditional Eurocentric, anesthetized, uh, medicalized intervention and change behavior. So the idea is that this behavior of violence is disease. And when people see violence and they normalize violence, they spread violence to each other. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the only person that has a problem with this because I think it pathologizes black people. Absolutely. 100%. And so it says that we are a vector of disease. Mm -hmm. And somehow white people who have academic degrees, they're the cure. Right. Right. And so flipping it on its head, if violence in America is a disease, the question that I propose to these folks is who is patient zero? Who's the typhoid Mary of disease of, the disease of violence in America? Mm-hmm. And the example that I give, um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but not really, Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. So if you see the inauguration of imperialism and slavery as the beginning of the disease, so-called disease of violence that's currently implicating the black community, as Dr. Wilson would have us understand it, yeah. your entire perspective on this issue changes. Also, what is the cure changes, mm. right? Because the, the cure is typically external to to you when you look at medicine and health exactly. and that sort of thing, yeah. Exactly, so just one quick example of where I think uh, you can see some of the distinctions when you have an African-centered radical perspective. Mm -hmm. is one of the primary vectors of the disease of violence that needs to be dealt with is the Black Gorilla Family, the BGF. Well-known street organization in Baltimore and many parts of the country. Um, and if you look at the actual picture on the screens, big scary black dude with a gorilla Black Gorilla family on his chest spelled G-O-R-I-L-L-A. Mm -hmm. And when I saw this, I'm like, um, it clicked for me. Because many of the people watching the channel right now, and many of the people who have any context for the African Black Radical tradition at all, will understand that when it first started, it wasn't the Black Gorilla family, like the gorillas in the mist. Right. It was the Black Guerrilla family. As in, the term used, appropriated from Spanish freedom fighters against Franco, to 
radical freedom fighters around the world, starting with George Jackson in San Quentin Prison in 1971. So the BGF was founded to deal with the violence of the guards in mm -hmm. San Quentin and turning the resistive impulse that led many black people to jail, and of course racism, but the desire to resist, turning it away from attacking your fellow black person. And instead of seeing it as a disease to be destroyed, seeing it as a logical response to oppression to be harnessed, people like George Jackson wanted to turn that impulse against the oppressors, against the prison guards, against mm -hmm. the white supremacist industrial complex. Shockingly enough, I don't think that's what they're doing in Carolinas. <laughs> right. And again, when you see it from the perspective of Dr. Wilson, at the very minimum, you're missing a fundamental component of what has to happen for these services to work. But that's the reality that we're facing. And if, again, there's a picture of George Jackson, and you can see when you pathologize the community, you ignore the violence of the white supremacist system, like this gang of L.A. sheriffs, who was literally a gang. Mm -hmm. Gang tattoos, gang initiations. Like, people in L.A. say, if you see a cop with a shaved head, just turn the other way. Hmm. Because they understand that person to be part of, like, a white supremacist gang. Mm. Of course, you got the... Uh, gun Trace Task Force here in Baltimore, we have this reality of violence being systemic in the system, but not only is violence prevention not necessarily turning uh, the systems, the, these, these individuals who have this uh, resistive impulse, this uh, so-called antisocial impulse to, re to resist authority, and not turning it against the institutions of violence, they oftentimes are colluding with systems of violence. Yeah. So, I yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's just really, you know, back to what we were saying earlier, it's really interesting how we um, contextualize and say, where's this violence coming from or who whose violence are we trying to prevent, right? Mm -hmm. Like, are we trying to prevent the L.A. Sheriff's violence? Are we trying to prevent mm -hmm. prison guards' violence? Or are we just focusing on black youth? Those are the folks who are violent. Mm -hmm. Those are the folks who are diseased. And that's that should be a target of all of our interventions. And not only the target of all of our interventions but the interventions by which we mostly benefit from by paying our salary and getting mm -hmm. us grants and uh whether or getting academics their tenure exactly. or getting their grants and, yeah and that's that a whole research industrial complex on yeah. intervention that i go into my other talk i don't have time to talk about it now mm -hmm. but yes i mean i'll talk to i'm going to conclude on this but this is becoming a multi-billion dollar industry yeah and one of the things i realized that it wasn't just it's not really about us not about caring about black lives it's about mm -hmm. violence in urban areas is the critical vector to control real estate value mm -hmm. so when mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. a high murder mm -hmm. rate people who are rich do not want to move to your city they do not want to move their programs to your city so when this program roca it comes from boston the white lady who does it she's originally from baltimore but she went to boston what they have is they have the seal of approval from harvard school of public health and they work in Baltimore now. They're getting around $20 million a year to work in Baltimore. Mm. And what we were told was that the mayor who brought them here was told by the business community to go get Roca. Mm. And the business community told them to get Roca because Roca is a story that they can tell their friends that don't worry about the murder rate in Baltimore. We have Harvard School of Public Health certified programming to deal with that. So it's more of a real estate protection program mm -hmm. than one designed to address violence. I'm not saying that they aren't trying. I'm not saying there aren't folks that are doing good work. I'm saying the impulse that's making this a mainstream issue is not defunding police. It is not an emancipatory desire to affirm black life. It is a recognition that police alone 
and cities like Baltimore ain't doing it. Mm-hmm. And if we want, you know, we got Under Armour here, we got cybersecurity companies, we have biotech companies. If we want them to stay here, we're going to have to sell them that they can get their workforce to live here. Mm-hmm. And they can't do that unless they give them stories around things like Roca, around things like the spy plane that was here that we let a lawsuit against and won. And that's more the impulse for this program. And you can tell that by the way they do their work. So Roca is all about services, life coaching. They don't do the community violence intervention work that we talked about before. They do straight up life coaching and they talk about like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And look at the people that donate to them. You know, the number one person that donates to them is a real estate company. Mm. Right? <laughs> and most powerful people in both cities of Boston and Baltimore. Uh, Johns Hopkins University, you know, the uh, construction contractors. And, and this is actually a list from 2000. So in 2001, you'll see the, the real estate companies are like very, very high in terms of the nonprofit industrial complex and the real estate industrial complex being tied to their work. And you can listen to them. Mm-hmm. So you can just listen to what they say. So this is a screenshot of a lady from Boston who works for Roca, basically, I think, giving up the game a little bit. Well, she literally says that we work with the cops. Our goal is to make the people in our program cool with the cops. And if people are not coming to our program, she says, we tell the cops to lock them up. (laughs) If they have a dime bag of weed on them, process them Mm. so we can get them back into our Roka program. So if Mm. you look at the video, it's straight from the lady's mouth in terms of their collaboration with the police. Yeah. you know, John, you're you're right on. Uh, there's probably a handful of, of older officers who 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 are the decision makers, rank and file, who definitely um, believe in the in this process. And um, those are the ones that we need because, like sure. Carl alluded to, the rank and file make sure that the other officers go. So when we do circle training and it, it's for the community policing, well, as soon as you come out of the academy, your first run is community policing, and then. Um, so they make them come. So a lot of times they're like, I don't know, my, my sergeant told me to be here, you know, and I'm getting overtime <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And, right. and that's okay. But by the end of it, they're, you know, they're seeing our young people who are working in the streets, on, you know, with their Roka sweaters on. They're like, hey, man, how you doing? You're doing a great job. Right. Because oftentimes they ask, what can we do? And we're like, well, when you see them, say, do a good job. Or when you see them not doing a good job, you know, hem them up, but call me and say, hey, if you're not at Roka on Monday, I'm going to, I'll, I'm going to take this dime bag and, and process it. Otherwise, sure. go to Roca and they follow up with me and say, did they go? Yeah, they went. Great. All set. So those are the things that um, um, the Institute is, is working on all of that because Molly wants to get it to everybody. And um, so that's, that's part of it. They're working on it. Yeah. So this is the second video, Mike. So I want to conclude on that's the end of what I did last time. Now, since then, I've gone more in depth about what people are doing today to try to shift the industry, to try to push the industry more to where we want to see it Mm -hmm. and what we can do to support that and demand that as opposed to the ways people are trying to co-opt that. Mm. So this is Erica Ford. Erica Ford is one of the leaders in the face of Life Camp, which is an anti-violence group in Queens. So she's actually held up as like a symbol for the movement. She has this big gray afro. So she kind of makes a great symbol. She's back on the Breakfast Club. Um, But when I started looking at their methodologies, I saw they had a methodology that really resisted the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, But they also have some other stuff. So they have the Peace Mobile. The Peace Mobile is very flashy. It's very, it's a mobile trauma response 
a unit where they do things like, you know, provide services and provide counseling for communities that have high violence. They bring it to community events. It's a politician's dream, basically. Mm. Because it looks like I'm really solving the problem. I'm bringing this programming to the community. And I'm not saying it's not good, but I heard that they were going to bring the Peace Mobile to Baltimore. They were going to replicate this model. What I didn't hear is they were going to replicate the most important part of what Life Camp is doing from my perspective, which mm-hmm. is this credible clinician model. So when you talk about violence interrupters, people who are on the streets dealing with young brothers and sisters who are proximate to violence, they're called credible messengers. So people who have been adjacent to the street economy mm-hmm. and are willing to ferret information back between warring camps because both sides respect that individual. Mm-hmm. It's exactly like a ridge phone in the midst of the Cold War so the Soviet Union and America can talk to each other because you need to deal with the communication breakdown which leads both sides to project the worst onto each other, which creates the desire for a preemptive strike. The exact same thing is happening in the hood, and that's why we need credible messengers who understand the culture of the hood to interrupt that cycle of violence. Mm. But in addition to that, we have all these millions of dollars going into so-called trauma-informed care, but are the people from the hood going to get access to that? Probably not. They don't have degrees. They are not sanctioned by Harvard Public Health School. Right. But Life Camp, realizing that, has created an intervention to interrupt that. They have this thing, not just credible messengers, but credible clinicians, where they're hiring people full-time, and you don't have to have a college degree. You can have a high school degree, or you can have just a proven track record of service in community, and that's how you get access to being a credible clinician for Life Camp. So I would tell folks to really investigate that model, and if you see anybody talking about mild prevention in your town, ask them about this dynamic. Are you just going to have licensed social workers or are you going to have credible clinicians? You can see the requirements. They do want you to have a degree, a mm-hmm. college degree, but if not, you get a high school degree and 10 years of experience. Now, and it seems technocratic. It seems minor, but it's stuff like this that determines whether the people in our community get access to billions of dollars or whether it's going to go to the same people that are calling our communities disease in the first place, mm-hmm. right? And you can see there's a, a national movement called Fund Peace, that has a lot of celebrities attached to it. You can see, now you know who that is, Erica Ford. Mm-hmm. You can see Tamika Mallory. You can see Steve Kerr, <laughs> all people. You can see uh, Camus Bell, and you can see other folks who are really uh, prominent uh, trying to get money for community-based violence interventions. And the big question, again, is, the, is that going to go to our people or is that going to feed the nonprofit industrial complex? Right? right. So if we go on to the last slide, there is a, and we do this, podcast in part because we know there are people around the country who are facing these dynamics. There are some things in Baltimore that we see because we're the home of Hopkins, we're the home of the nonprofit industrial complex, but this is coming for you. So these are the 16, 15 cities that are in the Community Violence Intervention Collaborative. This is a federally supported cooperative programming that's going to bring community violence interventions to the community in response to the spike in violence post-pandemic. Now, what is a community violence intervention? Go to the next picture. It's basically whatever they say it is. This term doesn't mean anything. Because when you hear a billion dollars for community violence intervention, you think, oh, great. The brother from the Nation of Islam is going to get money to mediate the conflict. Not necessarily. Look at all the things on this list. Planting trees is on this list. Community cleanups is on the list. Mm. Um, uh, cold effects. Increasing the number of cold effects is on the list. Better street lighting is on the list. Security cameras is on the list. So these are all things that are totally in line with the policing industrial complex. They have nothing to do with investing in grassroots people on the ground. 
and look at their evidence base for these interventions. It's literally one article. One article, they call it evidence-based best practice. And I get frustrated about this because it's like they're just making shit up. They're making shit up to fund whatever they want to fund. And there are people who have given their life doing this work who can't get funded because they basically want to use this as a real estate value protection strategy and not a community violence intervention strategy. You're not going to do it unless you make them, mm -hmm. right? But let's look at what I think is one of the strongest examples of something that is working and why it's working. So if you look at Newark, New Jersey, this is actually a newspaper from Philadelphia explaining what's happening in Newark. And it says that for 50 years, Newark was a regular on the list of top 10 most violent American cities per capita, but no longer. In fact, the city hit a 60-year low in homicides in recent years. The Newark City Street Team and its integrated approach is getting a lot of credit for that. What is the Newark City Street Team? Well, what we find is that of all the cities that have actually been talking about defunding police, it wasn't progressive Austin, it wasn't progressive Seattle, it wasn't progressive Portland where the white lefties and the black bloc, it was Newark of all cities that actually defunded the police. So if we look at the article, it says that Newark is slated to divert about $11 million of city funds from the public safety budget towards violence prevention programs. City Council passed the bill and Mayor Ross Baraka is set to take 5% from the city's public safety budget to create a new Office of Violence Prevention. The mayor says Thursday he does not want to abolish the police department. The idea is gaining traction and he says that we have all our energy focused on police, as if once you get rid of the police, so goes away white supremacy, institutional racism and poverty, and all the other issues that led to this. All of American institutions have the same problem that the police department has, all of them, the police just have the guns. Mm. So this is interesting to me, because anyone who knows Newark knows there was a huge battle between Ross Baraka, son of Mary Baraka, and Cory Booker. And that you could actually defund the police through Ross Baraka and his political network, I think is important. Because it's not the liberal progressive folks, it's the folks who have credibility in black civil society. Mm. The community groups, the grandmothers who remember Ross, uh, Mary Baraka and the work he did organizing the community in the 60s. You know, so that this was successful, I think, shows you the power of their model. And their model is specifically rooted in black community self-determination. So just, in, you look at the website, the website's very simple. That you want to actually know that this is uh, African-centered at all but you kind of get some ideas and they talk about, um, can you help us with my research project? And this is their response. They say, no, our organizational philosophy can be described as nothing about us without us. Without us. We believe that academic research practices have too often contributed to the exploitation of black communities and communities mm. of color. We require all researchers work within the community as an equal partner from the beginning, right? And so they explicitly talk about community self-determination being at the heart of their model in a way that you don't see in mm -hmm. other cities' violence prevention programs. And we know the research industrial complex um, is a tool by which the white nonprofits basically come in and claim the expertise on everything. So this is just one example of how they're pushing back. Another example is that they're actually a membership-based organization. So this is actually the screenshot of their website where they actually, can, they actually are soliciting memberships from people in the community where you pay 20 bucks a year mm -hmm. and you get a voting stake in what the organization does in its yearly meeting. That's very, very different than a traditional public health-led nonprofit model. Because they say the nonprofit people are the experts, the public health people are the experts, just trust them. 
Mm-hmm. And this is the opposite. This is going to the community and asking them to vote on what the institution does. Right. And again, this seems very technocratic, but this is exactly the sort of distinctions in terms of how they set up their balanced adventure programming so that it was actually open to people in community getting the money. And it's been proven to be one of the most successful in the country. But you, I hadn't heard about this until a month ago. I studied this for a living. And it's not an accident I didn't hear about Newark's violence prevention programming when I study violence prevention for a living. It's because if, if Newark gets successful, we don't need cure violence. We don't need to give them billions of dollars. We right. don't need Hopkins. And this is the reality of when they come to your town, ask them, what about Newark? What about the community public safety cooperatives? I'm Dr. Akil Bashir founder of the Professional Community Intervention Training Institute, which is a partner in the uh, Collaborative Public Safety uh, Collective. The problem that the collective is attempting to solve is the vicious violence that is perpetuated in our communities. That violence deals from systematic racism, inequality, and a variety of other things. What's so unique about the collaborative is we have brought uh, some of the best experts, the traumatized people who have to deal with violence, and the public safety professionals, which includes law enforcement, to try to attack this and create the strategies and skill sets that are going to allow us to be effective in really combating the culture of violence as well as violence itself. From a societal standpoint, I think we truly need to embrace the fact that we are at an inflection point because of what has transpired with George Floyd and numerous other situations in the community. We cannot look for law enforcement to be the only anchor and the only individuals uh, and organizations that deal with public safety. We have got to make sure that we fund and invest in other strategies like the community-based public safety collective who can bring additional solutions to the table and help us truly deal uh, with the issues of concern in our community while embracing and broadening the concept of public safety where it's inclusive of all. Umbrella of black and brown-led organizations who are trying to do technical assistance for violence prevention in the space because mm -hmm. what we're getting is Biden giving $2 billion to community violence interventions to ease burden on the cops. There is basically a small war going on in this industry mm -hmm. between people who want to do this work as an alternative to policing and people who want to do this community violence intervention work to supplement policing. Mm -hmm. So we talk about defund the police, we talk about it being a political issue. This is the battleground. And you need to go with the people who are at least willing to stand up and talk about challenging the hegemony of police and their control over public safety versus what Biden is saying. Because what Biden is saying is that we need everything. Just the liberal, we call it, you know, just do everything. Do right. a little bit of everything. Police are great. Newark <sighs> Community Street Team is great. They're all great. And what the Newark Community Street Team is saying is no. They're actually at the protest demanding that the money from legal cannabis in New Jersey go to them and not the police. Mm. I, honestly, I, unfortunately, I can't imagine many other nonprofits doing this in their city. They can only do this, I believe, because of the grassroots community organizing in that town and because they're independent 501c3, right? Because this is what you need to actually do community balance intervention. You need a funding stream that's not dependent upon the feds, that's not dependent upon what the community is willing to give you year by year, but something like the cannabis reparations, which we're working on here in Maryland, if that can go to this work consistently, then they control the industry. They have funding that you can't take away easily. Right. And so when you're talking about black sovereignty to solve our problems, 
these are the approaches you have to think about. And these are the limitations of a nonprofit model that's tied to the Hopkinses and the Harvards and the Northwesterns and the U Chicago is that they're not going to allow you to come out and protest the police getting any money from the cannabis fund because they're going to say, don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's all we need to talk about for that talk. And I just want to, we're running short on time, but if you have any particular burning questions that we can I have up so on, many, but I know that we don't, that yeah, we don't have I know time. We have to kind of get out of here a little <laughs> bit earlier than usual, but. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, so much of um, just a general conversation of how these things are structured, um, how we how we set up what the problem is, informs how we set up what the solution is, who's getting paid from working on the solution, what uh, interventions are working, um, but are not being funded mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. But it's just more more questions and more conversations around that. And I really appreciate all of the work that you have done on that for conversations like this and uh, other presentations that you've done in the past around some of this mm-hmm. work. Yeah, and if we can, we may link to the longer presentation. Because, um, again, idea. that's more research-based. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think people, um, again, I just really wanted to give this talk because I know people watch this channel from around the country, in D.C., you know, anywhere that there's violence. You're going to hear this phrase, community violence intervention. And I just want you to understand, it doesn't mean anything inherently. There are people doing the work on the ground, but they're only going to get the money is if you ask critical questions around who gets access to the funds. Do you allow credible clinicians who don't have college degrees to access the funds? Is it an independent 501c3 or is it tied to the city government? That's a critical distinction. If it's independent, and not every model is going to work everywhere, but Newark Community Street Team for Lacatel is an independent 501c3. And they're allowed to incubate other entities underneath them as an umbrella organization, as a, um, a fiscal sponsor. And again, it's like if you give it to the city hall, you give it to the Department of Public Health, it becomes a patronage machine. It becomes a machine for them to fund whoever they want to fund, and then you're going to risk not getting the people in community who are doing the work in a matter that you actually want to see funded. They become a threat to the people who actually control the institution. Mm-hmm. And that's what mm-hmm. we're seeing here in Baltimore, right. where there are people who say things like, I see the work they're doing in community. I work at City Hall. I may have some money for you. And then a month later, the person's fired. Mm-hmm. Because these are the real stakes when you're talking about billions of dollars in the industry. So as this industry continues to flush out, we're going to do our work here and locally to support the people we know are doing the work. We're going to do all the work we can to push back against the narrative that no one's doing anything about murders when they all talk about police violence. Mm-hmm. We're going to do our work here at Black Power Media, which we hope you continue to support and subscribe to. And, of course, LBS, we're a political organization working on these issues all the time. So if you can support us, go to lbsbaltimore.com, learn more about our work, and understand that this is a critical step in terms of the community advancing and continuing to go in search of black power. So thank you and hope to see you soon. Thank you.